Father, again, we thank you for your plan of redemption, of sending your Son so that he might be our atonement. Father, again, we thank you that the entire amount of your fury and your wrath was poured out on him. We thank you for the Spirit of God who enabled and empowered our Lord. Lord, again, we confess that your resurrection is the conclusive evidence that we are indeed forgiven. It is the conclusive evidence that you were indeed who you said you were, the Son of God. And as sinful man, we can come and receive you. We can not only be forgiven, but made children of yours. And we know that you are coming back one day. We are assured of all these things because you rose from the dead. Father, I pray that we would be bold in the proclamation of the good news. Again, we thank you for giving us understanding, putting even belief in our hearts so that we would believe. May we honor and glorify you as we seek to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. We're going to be looking at some miracles that surrounded Calvary. And again, I know this is Resurrection Sunday. But I want to go back because if indeed Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, which he did, then the proclamations, the, as it were, the sermons that were being given out at the cross, because I believe these miracles each proclaim something, and if Christ rose from the dead, then these are all true. The miracles of Calvary. You know, when you look at that word miracle, what is a miracle? A miracle is an event or an act which breaks the law of nature, something that is different from the laws of nature. In other words, it's a supernatural event, something that is not common, something that is driven by, in our purposes here, divine power, something that God did. That's what I'm talking about when we say the miracles of Calvary. Something that God wants to do, and He wants to do it so He can proclaim a truth. And each one of these miracles, I believe, is proclaiming a certain type of truth. In other words, the first one is the miracle of perfect obedience. And we looked at a couple, three of these at our communion service on Thursday. So we'll just go through these quickly. I know some of you could not be with us. But again, there was eight of them, and I thought, you know, for outline purposes, let's look at all eight. Again, if you think about our Lord, he was flogged, he was mocked, he was shamed. Verse 27 says he put a scarlet robe on him, a crown of thorns, a reed in his right hand. They bowed to him. Actually, that was a mock, for mocking purpose, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him, they took the reed, they struck him on the head. And then they crucified him. And through that entire process, he did not sin. Now think about that. He didn't sin in action. He didn't sin in, in words. He did not sin in thought. In other words, the miracle of perfect obedience, Peter says, who committed no sin. Again, the law, the principle, or the law of sin, that we looked at many uh, weeks ago in Romans chapter 7, is in each one of us, but it was not in Christ. 
And he proved himself to be the perfect Lamb of God. Perfect obedience. And the second miracle is the uh, miracle of supernatural darkness. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Again, you remember he was on the cross for six hours total, starting at 9 a.m. The first three hours, uh, there was light. But then at 12 to 3, from the sixth to the ninth hour, total darkness. And And that speaks of the fact of judgment, that our sins were being judged on the cross. And again, the supernatural darkness points to that, because if you go in the Old Testament and the New Testament, darkness speaks of judgment. And the third miracle was of sovereign separation. It's where Christ cried out, and this was at the end of the suffering, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, be careful with that idea of forsaken. I say be careful because I often hear or periodically hear a person say, Jesus felt forsaken. And I want to I proclaim to you that he was forsaken. He bore the sin of his people on the cross. The Father turned. It wasn't just a feeling. It was an actuality. Or as James Boyce says, Jesus bore our hell in order that we might share in his heaven. We've got to understand the depth of it. He didn't just feel forsaken. By the way, even though he was forsaken, he was still loved by the Father. You have to put those two together. This is the climax of the suffering. This is where the atonement takes place. Was there suffering in the scourging, in the mocking, in the, the, the crown of thorns, in the, the spitting and and the hitting and everything that happened up to the cross. Yes, was, was there suffering in the cross up to this point? Yes, but that was what was done at the hands of man. On the, on the cross, in these three hours of darkness, this, is, this was the suffering done by the Father. Okay, do you, do you see that difference? The difference between the suffering done by the hands of men, sinful men, and the suffering that was done at the hands of the Father. Jesus was abandoned and crushed on the cross as he bore the sins of the world. That's what happened in these three hours. He was dying as a substitute for us. To him was imputed the guilt of our sin, and he was suffering the punishment of those sins on our behalf, crushed by the Father. In other words, the Father pulled out the full, poured out the full measure of his wrath against sin and placed it on his Son. Christ became the recipient of the wrath of his Father. Not because he had sinned, he was perfect, but because our sins were placed on him. So sin separated the Son from the Father for just a short time, but he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You say, why do you ask the question? Well, again, I think one of the things that sin does is is even just the anguish of it all. Have you ever been in so much pain you couldn't even really put everything together? Maybe that was part of it. Again, the God-man, but sometimes we forget that he was man. The God-man, man. Isaiah said, Surely our griefs he has himself bore, and our sorrows he has carried. Smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. 
and he was crushed. In fact, verse 10 says this, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, and that's what he did. He became our guilt offering. So again, the miracle of sovereign separation, and it never happened in eternity past, and it will never happen in eternity future. At that one moment, though, of time, there was a separation. And then finally, the miracle of an authoritative death. What I'm saying by this is Christ is in control through this entire process. Verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Loud, thundering. Which is really a miracle in itself that he could die. He had a perfect body. He had never sinned. Now think about that. The wages of sin is, the reason you die is because you are sinners. He wasn't a sinner. Yes, he became our sin offering, but he was never a sinner. So how could he die? He didn't have a fallen body. He didn't, he didn't sin. That itself, the fact that Jesus Christ died is a miracle. Not just the fact of how he died, but the fact that he did die. So you might say, well, how did he? Well, Galatians says this, who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself. In fact, over and over again in Scripture, Titus says he gave himself for us. Isaiah 53, because he poured out his soul unto death. He did it. He's in the act of seed here. Uh, Ephesians 5, Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. Then he says this. This is always a very hard one for me as a husband. Because it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. See, he gave himself. He's in control. And so in verse 50, if you're there, when it says, and he yielded up his spirit, that word yielded is in the, in the active voice. In other words, he yielded up his spirit. He, in fact, that's the same word that we get the word divorce. What is a divorce? You send somebody away. That's what it literally means. You send away. And he sent his spirit away. He gave up. In fact, John 19, verse 30 it says, it is finished. He, he, he proclaimed, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. There again, active voice. He gave up his spirit. He dismissed his spirit from his body. The only man in human history that's ever done that. And, and you, we found that, by the way, earlier uh, in John chapter 10, when he's talking about being the good shepherd. He says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Therefore, my Father loves me, verse 17, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. He's talking about his life. No one takes my life from Remember when the, the uh, soldiers come? They didn't take him. He went with them. They all fell backwards. Hey, right there, they should have known something was different. I'm sure they did. In fact, we're going to see a soldier at the end who I think understood it. <clears throat> But the point was, is no man took his life from him. No man takes it from me, verse 18, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Told his disciples way back in John 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll I'll raise it up. I will be the one to raise it. I will be in control. I am in control of this entire process. The miracle of the authoritative death. He was indeed in control of not only his life, but his life up to the end. And three days later, he rises from the dead. 
By the way, all connected with the Trinity. We've got to remember that. All connected with the Trinity. Now, those are the things that happened before, or during, actually, while he's on the cross. Now, we want to look at four miracles, and this is where we want to spend most of our time. After the sacrifice was made, after he gave up his spirit, some things happened that are very, very interesting. Again, I believe these are, as it were, four sermons, four things that we can learn. This is, these miracles pointed directly to four truths that the Father wanted known. The first miracle was of total access to God. Look at verse 51. Total access to God. Then behold, the veil, the veil, the veil means to cover, of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So again, he's dead. He died. Gave up his spirit. And now four things are happening. And the first one is the veil is torn. And it's, and it's proclaiming the fact of total access to God. I've got to give you some background information. The temple, when he talks about the temple, refers not to the temple as a whole, but to the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, is what he's referring to there. Or at least leading into the Holy of Holies. It's, it's the, the, the place of between the holy place, <clears throat> where you have the labor, the showbread, and the Holy of Holies, where you have the Ark of the Covenant. And that is where the Holy of Holies, like if, I should have brought in a picture, but if you think of the temple, the temple had a lot of different courts, and it was, it was a rectangle, and you had the court of the Gentiles, and then you walked through that to the court of the women, and then you walked through that to where the brazen altar was, and then you walked through that into the holy place, and then you had the Holy of Holies. And if you look at the entire temple, the way it was laid out, it was all like focused in on the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was there where symbolically God dwelt with His people. That's the point. And only the high priest on the Day of Atonement could enter the Holy of Holies. Just once a year, very quickly, in and out. The purpose was to sprinkle the blood, and then it was done for the year. In fact, one commentator said this. Only one day during the year could the high priest pass the veil. And that was on the Day of Atonement when the high priest took the blood of an animal killed moments before in the courtyard, carried it past the veil, and then sprinkled it on the mercy seat of the ark. The mercy seat was the, was the ark's cover or lid. The figures of the two angels faced each other on the lid, and their wings stretched backward and upward, making a space in which God symbolically dwelt. The ark con contained the two tablets of the law below the space where God was thought to dwell. The ark was a picture of judgment, for the righteous holy God of the universe looked down on the law, knew that it had been broken, and that he had to punish the people for their sins. This dramatic illustration took on, took on the temple mount day after day, throughout the year as a constant reminder of God's judgment. That's the whole point. He's there, but the law is underneath. The law was in the, the ark. And, and it's, it's like looking at, you are continually breaking my law, but I'm here. Once a year, you can go in, sprinkle the blood. When blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, however, coming between God and the law that had been broken, the act indicated that an atonement for sin had been made illustrating grace. An innocent victim, i.e. the animal, had died in the people's place. And rather than pouring forth wrath, God was now able to show grace and mercy to the people. 
This pointed forward to the true and final atonement that Jesus Christ would make on the cross. It pointed forward to his death, as did all the other sacrifices of the Old Testament. So here we see the significance of tearing the veil. When Jesus died, everything the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to was fulfilled. So now, now, now think about that. So you have this big area. You have this rectangle, which is called the temple. And you had to walk through the, the, uh, the court of the Gentiles to the court of the women to where the brazen offering was into the holy place, into the holy of holies. And the veil that he's referring to there is that veil, that blue veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And it had been ripped. Can you imagine that? All of a sudden, what God is proclaiming is that you don't need a priest to go to me. Now, let me, give you, let me break this down a little bit more. Three things we can learn from the tearing of the veil. The first is the obvious. The old system of offering sacrifices year after year after year was over. That's the first thing. You don't need the old covenant. And again, this happened. This is very, very important. We'll see this in a moment. At 3 p.m. on the day of Passover, which again was the beginning of the evening sacrifices, they say that in that temple yard there would have been 100,000 people bringing their Passover lamb. Slaughter after slaughter. I mean, you think about a priest, they're really like a butcher. Just slaughter after slaughter. Blood. They say that the blood running from the temple would turn the, uh, the little river there red. Just red. I mean, that's all that was flowing out of there was just blood. Just hundreds of people, thousands of people, Passover lands being slaughtered. They're coming in for the evening's offering. The priest is about ready to offer the evening offering and all of a sudden there's an earthquake that we see in a moment and this veil is torn and they can actually see into the inner sanctuary. I'm sure some of those priests after this whole incident now they try to sew up the veil. But you know there's an interesting thought. I'm sure they were aghast. Can you imagine how? But you know in... uh, In Acts chapter 6, it says this, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I bet you a lot of those were right there. They saw that. They were, maybe it was the one that was actually offering, and they ripped in the inner sanctuary, and they, they understood what it meant that the final sacrifice had been made. No other sacrifices were needed. So the old system of offering sacrifices year after year was was over. Let me have you turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Because I want you to make sure we understand this one part here. Ephesians 2.14. Because when I first read this, I was thinking that this middle wall separation was the same thing as the veil. Ephesians 2.14, it says this, For he himself, and that's an emphatic pronoun, he himself is our peace, who has made both one, who do you mean? Gentile and Jew. Up to this point, it was the Jew. And you had the court of the Gentiles on the outskirt of the temple area. 
But now he says, has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his own flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments containing in ordinances. In other words, all the laws, the feasts, the offerings, all the requirements. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. What's his point here? There's no longer, not, not only is the law no longer going to be, the old covenant is no longer in effect, but he's broken down this middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile. Remember the, the Gentile, or the Jews used to pray, I mean the, the the, the real religious Jews, you know, Lord, thank you that you did not make me a, a Gentile or a woman. And, and now God is saying, listen, there is no d- distinction between Jew or Gentile. That middle wall of partition has been broken down. But the, the, this partition he's talking about is not the veil between the holy and the holy of holies. He's really talking about that entrance point between the court of the Gentiles leading into the court of the women. He's saying, listen, now even a Gentile can go into the temple, as it were. In fact, back then, this middle wall, which again refers to the separation between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple, this is what there would be a sign that literally was posted. Again, if you were a Gentile proselytes, you could walk around there, but you could never get close to the actual Holy of Holies. You were, you were unclean. And there was this actual sign that read this, No Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and the enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. They were very serious about this. You could not enter. But now, because of Christ's death, there's two things I've actually thrown on the table so far. One is, the Gentiles could now enter. And not only that, but when it came to the priests that could never enter the Holy of Holies, only the high priest in the Day of Atonement, that veil has been torn. Christ has opened up access to God, total access to God. So the first thing is the old system of offering sacrifices year after year was over. Number two, Jesus' offering of himself was the perfect and final sacrifice. Again, nothing more needs to be added. By the way, religion wants to add more. Do you know that? Religion wants to keep adding more. And sometimes they do it in a very, very sincere way. But I have to do something. But understand, that's poison to the gospel. Christ has done it all. The old covenant, again, was not sufficient. The blood of bulls and goats could not forgive sin. In fact, Romans says this, Romans 3.25, God passed over sins previously committed. The idea is, for centuries, God was passing over sin. It was being literally covered, 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 covered. Every time the uh, priest, the high priest, offered, that sin was being covered. It wasn't being dealt with in the sense of forgiven, destroyed. But when Christ died... It was atoned for. It was actually paid for. He paid the penalty. If you go to Hebrews 9.25, Hebrews 9.25, or you can just listen to me. It says this, not that, he, not that he should offer himself often, talking about Christ, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, which is the which animal sacrifice, blood on the mercy seat. He's not like that. Verse 26, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, 
But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it has been appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Once. Underline the word once. It happens a couple times there. Once. Doesn't have to be like the high priest. He's not going to offer himself again. When he said it was, it is finished, complete. Sacrifice complete. That's why it's so important that the veil was torn. You don't need that. But it feels so right. No, it's wrong. So offered himself once. And then finally, see, because of Christ's work, it is now again possible for all believers to approach God directly. If you're in uh, Hebrews 9, just go flip over to verse chapter 10, verse 19. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The holiest. Now think about what he's saying there. The holiest. You you can approach God. Why is it that we don't take advantage of that, that possibility? We can approach God. We have, but not only, not like this. By the way, in, the, in that day and age, you never approached a, a monarch. He was always taller than you. You, you. you approached him as it were graveling. That's why that word, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We are bold. Not arrogant. Bold. Bold being like confident. We can do it. Why? Because we're his children. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. That is his flesh, his death. That's what he means by flesh. His death. That's what purchased that ability to approach God. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I mean, we can do it. We can approach God. In fact, Hebrews 4.16 again says it the same similar way. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Boldly. Because Christ is Christ's sacrifice has made access, total access possible for us. So we are not just believers. We are not just children of God. We are actually priests. That's what we call the priesthood of the believer. Sometimes I think you... You treat maybe myself or someone else, maybe like that's called to be a pastor in a special way. Now, there might be something to that, but the point is that I'm just a priest, just like you're a priest. I've heard people say, well, I want you praying for me, pastor, because I know like your, your prayers are going to be heard. No, your prayers are going to be heard too, right? Do you see how we sometimes think that wrongly? Wait, we're all priests. We all should come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, think about that throne. Again, We don't have to grovel. We're supposed to come boldly, but it is a throne. He is the king, but it's the throne of grace. That's what makes us be able to be bold. If it was just a throne, we can't be bold, but it's the throne of grace. We can be bold. We come to Christ through grace. We live by grace. We pray because of grace. I'm secure because of grace. I'm not secure because I live a great life. You know, I'm really seeking for... Do I sin? No, I don't sin. That's why I don't have to. No, I sin. Just like you sin. That's the truth, right? Fellow strugglers, we sin. What do you mean you can go boldly before the throne of grace? Because it's grace. Because it's grace. He purchased it. It wasn't, it's not my, it's not my, um, 
abilities. It's through grace. So again, total access, veil tor. You can enter into the holiest. Not only that, but you're a Gentile? Can, yes, a Gentile. He's not just talking about Jews here. You didn't become a Jew. All one. Opened up the door. Now you can go in through the court of the women to the holiest holy. And the temple is no longer... By the way, it was only a few years later after this that the temple was no more. Because when Titus came in, destroyed Rome, the temple was gone. And they lost the ability to even do a temple. But again, it wasn't needed. All right, the, the fifth one. Actually, the second one after the actual death. The miracle of future judgment. Verse 51, And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now again, earthquakes themselves are not miraculous. But the timing of this one was, okay? I mean, in itself, an earthquake is not miraculous. But look at The veil is torn. And I'm sure some people thought, well, the veil was torn because of the earthquake. No, that was supernatural too. The veil was being torn, supernatural. By the way, you would expect the veil to be torn this way because it was very heavy. And you, th- you would think it might be torn this way, horizontal. But this was torn from top to bottom. That... That wouldn't have been. So, but what does the earthquake symbolize? It it symbolizes the presence and the awesomeness of the Father. Future judgment. I mean, again, if you go back to the Old Testament, when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai to give the law, it says this, and the whole mountain quaked greatly, shook. David, in Psalms 18, verse 7, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because, of he, because he was angry. And I'm sure part of the quaking was just the fact that, you know, I had to make my son suffer on your behalf for sinful man. Jeremiah 10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble. Do you see this? Old Testament, you can see. When the earth trembles, it's saying that God is judging sin and sinners. It didn't happen during the cross. It happened right at the end. I have judged sin. The earthquake coming at the very moment of Christ's atoning work. It was like one man said, a divine punctuation mark. You know, you read the sentence in punctuation. It's like God got it done in punctuation. It's done. It's finished. I've judged. I've judged sin. But also, I think this, the earthquake reminds us of the final judgment. The final. Go to Revelation chapter 5. The final judgment. In Revelation, five times there's reference to an earthquake. Five times. In, verses, in, in chapter 5, verse 9, I'm going to have you turn to a few passages in Revelation. 5, verse 9. Again, the perfect Lamb of God. Perfection. Because He was perfect, He rose from the dead. It, it proved that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. It proved, the resurrection proved that he indeed was the Son of God. But because he died, and because he is the Son of God, it also, he was given the title deed to the earth. Okay, and that's what, that's what um, 
chapter 5 is talking about. I saw verse 1. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back seal with seven seals. The scroll, the, the title deed to the earth, and it's given to the Lamb. You don't need to go into that at the moment. But look at verse 9. And they sang with a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll. Okay, just let's get to that point. He takes it and open and to open its seals, and you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. See, because of your sacrifice, because of your obedience, you've been given the, 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 the title deed to the earth. So the, really the person who's judging in Revelation in the, in the tribulation is Christ himself. He came as the lamb. He actually comes back as the lamb, but as the lamb who judges. But now let's look at a couple of where places where the, the earthquake happens. Chapter 6, verse 12. Now, he opens the seal, the first, the second, the third. Let's see here. Verse 12 is the sixth seal. And I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. By the way, not just an earthquake, a great earthquake. Japan had what, an 8.9 earthquake? Is that correct? What did they say? The wave got to be about 30 feet high? Is that right? I remember one of the guys talking, he said, because the commentator asked one of these seismologists, is that what that is? That, anyways, he said, you know, well, how, how big of an earthquake can you get? I mean, you know, you got an 8.8, 8.9. What, he said, well, he said, it's unlimited as far as how big an earthquake can be. It's just that we only can measure them this far because that's all that's ever happened in our lifetime. So let's say a great earthquake, the difference between an 8.9 and how about a 20.3, the difference between a 30-foot wave and a 150-foot wave. That's what we're talking about here. In fact, if you go to chapter um, 8, verse 5, so, so do you see what that was? That was one of the seals. One of the judgments that, that Christ puts on this earth is an earthquake. Look at 8.5. 8. 8. Uh, chapter 8, verse 5. <laughs> I'm thinking earthquakes. Then the angel took the censer, filled it. This is between the, uh, the seals and the trumpets. Angel uh, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there was no, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Uh, let's see here. Let's go to 16 verse 18. I won't have you turn to all of them. This is an interesting one. See, because you go through the bold judgments and all that. I think this is part of the bold. Yeah, this is part of the bold judgment. So you have the seals, the trumpet judgments. Now you have the bold judgment. 16 verse 18. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. How about a 30.3 and a 300-foot wave? I mean, that's what he's saying. I mean, you, you think you've seen earthquakes? You haven't seen anything. So the earthquake and the rocks were split... And I think this, this refers in, in uh, Matthew 27 for future judgment. In fact, there's one place that it says that uh, the earthquake happened in Jerusalem. Part of these, is one of them happens actually in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where this one happened. And there's going to be another one that happens. God is coming back. Christ is coming back. Future judgment. Well, let's go back to Matthew 27. Let's look at last two. Last two. So we have access to God, Dale Tellern. We have future judgment coming, the earthquake. We have upcoming resurrection, 
the miracle of an upcoming resurrection. Look at verse 52. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So we have a, a resurrection. Not the final resurrection. Not a complete resurrection. This is actually a spiritual resurrection. Notice this. The graves were opened. By the way, an earthquake can open a tomb, but it cannot let out a soul. Don't connect the earthquake with, you know, you can, I mean, it's up to Kerr, you know, you can have the top fall over, but it doesn't release a soul. This is a releasing of the soul. This is supernatural. But I think, he, I think the message is there's, coming an, there, there's an upcoming resurrection going to happen. So this is a spiritual resurrection. Not only that, it's a selective. It says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. Notice, had fallen asleep. I love that. Not talking about died in the sense of annihilation. Just fallen asleep. Just waiting for their soul to be reunited with their body. By the way, the saints, not the damned, just a few of the saints. And you know, the word many could be really referring to not very many. It might be... As many as just a few, like maybe 25 to 50. Let's face it, if one of the people that died in this church came back and visited us in a glorified body, you'd start paying attention. The whole point was to get them to pay attention. And people have speculated, like, who was it? Was it like Moses? Was it, was it someone who had just died? Was it like Lazarus? You know, someone that maybe had died and then maybe had died again. And, you know, who was it? Well, we don't know. But we do know this. It was a spiritual resurrection. It was a few, not complete. And again, it was the fact of the body being united to the soul. Okay? The soul was with God, but now this is... That's what a resurrection is. Not the soul, it's the body being united. Just a few. Glorified bodies. In other words, they were fit for heaven. These were not, they didn't get unglorified bodies, they got glorified bodies. They didn't get mortal bodies, they got the final product, as it were. But again, it's a special revelation. So it's not only a spiritual and a selective, it's a special. After, and notice this, they, in coming out of the graves after his resurrection. So it wasn't at that very moment that everybody started seeing these, these uh, glorified people walking around. They, they waited until after he was first of all resurrected. They had to wait for the, the first fruit. Uh, like Corinthians 15 says this, verse 20. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first. He had to, he had to rise from the dead first. Colossians says the same thing. Firstborn from the dead. So I don't know how it all worked out. With the, but, but you have to make sure you see in verse 53, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, not his death, his resurrection. So what was God proclaiming here, though? God was giving assurance of a future and final resurrection that when Christ comes back, all the dead in Christ will rise. Because he rose, because this partial resurrection happened, we all have assurance that someday we will all be resurrected. And you might say, well, what happened to these people after whatever? They went to, I believe they went to heaven. Some would say, well, no, no, they, they died again. But just like Elijah, I believe they're in heaven, glorified bodies. It's just a select few. 
Maybe some of those, you know, I, 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 again, this is where you can conjecture, and it's, I'm not saying this is biblical, I'm just saying this is conjecture, but you wonder if some of them might have been some of the, the Old Testament saints. Oh, and yeah, and I'm Hannah. And I'm Moses. I don't know. But the point is, it's uh, upcoming resurrection. Let me give you uh, the total truth, though. We know that we're going to be resurrected, right? Because he lives, because he is the resurrection and life, we will also have life. Remember when uh, Lazarus was dead and Jesus was talking to Martha and he said, you know, he will live again. And she said, you know, she agreed with that. She understood resurrection. But let me give you the full truth. The full truth is found in John chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. John 5, 28 says this though. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Believers, those who have done good. Who can do good? No man does good, Romans says. Those who have received Christ, those who have been placed in Christ, those can, be, those can do good because of the power of the Spirit of God. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So again, there's two resurrections. Those who are believers and those who are not. Those resurrection to life, resurrection to condemnation. I say that because I'm reading a book on hell. And one man even wrote a book, I think he called it Whatever Happened to Hell. Because there's a new movement even within evangelicals, people I would consider strong, in the faith, who say this, yes, there is a resurrection to life for those who receive Christ, but how could a loving God ever punish someone forever in hell? And what they've come up with is basically a doctrine of annihilation. And yet that is not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says every soul will be resurrected, united with a body. We will have a glorified body. Those who are not believers will have an unglorified, wrecked, body, if you will. But each will, will be resurrected and united with a body, and those who have life will enjoy bliss in heaven, and those who have not received Jesus Christ will forever suffer torment with an uh, unglorified, corrupted body forever in hell. That is very, very clear. So there is an upcoming resurrection. The question is, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because only those who have trusted Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and have been made righteous through his blood, faith in him can enjoy a resurrection to life and enjoy presence of God in heaven forever. And then finally, the final miracle. And some would say this is the greatest of all the miracles, is the miracle of the new birth. Look at verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly. Terrified. Terrified, that's what he means. Saying, truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion and those who were with him. Now think about this, the centurion. Some have wondered, is this the same centurion that actually arrested him in the garden? Did he follow him the whole time? Was he on duty that whole time? Perhaps. Again, a centurion is a... A Roman centurion was a captain over a hundred. I believe this, that they were probably there for the arrest. These, these men, they were there for the arrest, the trial. They heard the charges. 
They participated in the scourging. They participated in the beating and the mistreatment and the mocking. They heard Pilate repeat the declaration. He felt that Christ was innocent. The one who had been given the task of literally crucifying Christ. This this is who we're talking about here. We can assume he was a pagan. And if religious, an idolater. But when he saw what happened, when Jesus died, God quickened him to spiritual life, and he cried out with true faith, truly, this was the Son of God. I mean, think about this. This is a hardened soldier. This is a man who had killed people, had taken pleasure in killing people. I'm sure at the beginning of the process, mocked along with the rest. But it says this. Look at 54. He saw the earthquake. He felt the earthquake. And the things that had happened. Now, this is what had happened up to this point. Now, now think about the things that had happened. He had heard him pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Who was Christ praying for at that moment? Him. He had heard that. He had heard him say, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief. The criminal. And I'm sure mocked up that point, but I'm sure there was a seed planted. And then it says, you know, as Christ is just before total darkness, he's experienced the three hours of darkness. And then Jesus, it says in Luke 23, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice. Now think about this. After all the torture and all the blood loss, physical, and now all of a sudden he gives one final cry in the darkness, it is finished. And I'm sure this, this soldier's mind is racing. I, I thought he was just a common, you know, a, a lunatic. He proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. It is finished. Then Jesus said this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having, having said this, he breathed his last and gave up his spirit. Now, he has just witnessed all this. All this is very, you know, happening very quickly. We've kind of... And it says that after he's seen, I mean, and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. So it wasn't just the centurion, but those that were with him, standing by him, standing guard over him. I mean, he cried out with a loud voice, and it clicked. I believe at that very moment, it clicked. He truly is the Son of God. It wasn't just a statement. He's not just a lunatic. In fact, Luke says this, When the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. So now you can start adding him up. He's a righteous man. He truly is the Son of God. In fact, John 19 says, You know, he made himself the Son of God, but he realized that he was the Son of God. So the centurion and his soldiers with him were evidently the first converts to Christ after his crucifixion, coming to faith precisely at the moment of the atonement. I just find that so interesting. Isn't that great? A hardened soldier, someone who had seen people say all kinds of things. I mean, at the point of death, you just say all kinds of things. and Being tortured, all kinds of things. And yet at the end of this, he says, no, he is the one. And you can only say this, how, how could that be? Because it is God that brings to life a dead person. 
It is God who brings to life a person like a centurion. Do you have a centurion in your life? Do you have a centurion in your life? Someone who is hardened? Someone who is very, very sinful? And and maybe you have written them off. I would have written the centurion off, wouldn't you have? And yet it's very, very evident from his testimony that this was, this was God working in a hardened man's life and, and brought salvation to him. Truly, he is the Son of God. Never give up. What is our job? To save them? No. To give them the gospel. Give them the truth. Tell them who Jesus Christ is. Don't give up on your centurion in your life. But how about you? Again, we have seen eight miracles at the cross. And with each one, the Father is saying that the cross is the only hope for eternal life. That's what it's saying. It's saying that to you, though. This is not somebody else we're talking about. What about you? When one's sin is carried away by Christ's atoning death, the wrath of God is appeased for the believer, and he is delivered from the death and condemnation that the Lord endured on his behalf. Have you placed your faith and trust in him and said, Lord, I understand that you paid the penalty for my sin. You, you are my substitute. I want you to be my substitute. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? For those who believe in the Son, access to God is open wide. And they are assured of living in his eternal and indestructible kingdom in the eternal, indestructible bodies that God is going to provide. Amen? It's not the end. This is not the end. Some of our bodies are breaking down. We're looking death in the eye. (laughs) It may not happen this week, but it's going to happen if the Lord doesn't return. But the question is this, are you prepared? Because there is a resurrection coming for each person. Each person here, you will be resurrected. The question is, to damnation or to life? To heaven or to hell? So the extreme question that you have to ask, the most important question that you have to ask yourself is, who's going to pay for my sin? Because that's really what it's all about. The Bible is very clear that we are sinners. And the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ came to this earth and gave himself for sinners. And those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be forgiven not may be forgiven, will be forgiven. In fact, Jesus himself said this, for as many as received him, or actually John speaking, to them he gave the right, to those who receive him, to those he gave, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, to those who believe, to those who receive, will you receive him today? You say, well, how do I do that? Cry out to him. Ask him to forgive. It's not about walking an aisle, though you could do that. But the point is that you're going to Jesus Christ and you're saying, Lord, I believe. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe I'm, I'm going to be judged by God. I believe that when you were on the cross that you died for sinners and I believe that you died for me and I'm receiving you. I repent. I'm changing the direction of my life. I want to move to the direction that you want me to go. That's part of repentance. Lord, I want you. I don't want me. That's the point. I need you. Some said Beg. I don't think that's inappropriate. Lord, I believe. Let me finish that verse out, though. John 1.12, it doesn't just say those who believe in His name. It says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, that's what what God is proclaiming in the cross. 
at the cross. Hey, if you come to Christ, it's not because you got smart. It's because I planted life in you and you wanted the Savior. Be confident in that. By the way, that shouldn't create unconfidence, doubt. That should create confidence. If you have that thought, you know, Lord, I know that you're the Savior. You know who put that there? Not you. That was put there by God himself. He is rescuing you. So again, be confident in the fact that this is God's program. This is God's plan. He sent his son for you. Have you received him today? I trust that you have. And again, if you ever have any questions, me, I don't understand. Please ask me. What is the gospel? The gospel, one man said, is, is something like this. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. Except it's this. It's one sinner telling another sinner where you can find forgiveness. And it's only found in Christ. Let's stand as we sing to him. We trust that you'll have a great Resurrection Sunday. And I really pray that you will have an opportunity to give the good news to someone else. Let's make that a priority. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the miracles at the cross, the things that they proclaim. Father, again, we thank you that we have access now, that I can pray to you and you are hearing me, and that each one of us that are believers in you can do the same. Father, again, we thank you that as judgment comes, that we are no longer going to be judged as believers, that we have life, that we are part of your family. And we ask that you would give us boldness to be able to proclaim truth to others. Lord, we each know many people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you put them on our hearts. Help us to, first of all, be praying for them. And Lord, give us an opportunity to share with them. And at that moment that we have that opportunity, help us to be bold. Lord, just give us confidence. Lord, again, we love you. Remind us often of this resurrection, that it's true, that you're the only one in the world that did it. And Lord, thank you for calling us to yourself. So we ask for your guidance and your direction so that we might honor and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.